Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast season six finale. I'm your host Holly Rubenstein and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. What a busy few months it's been and today may be the final episode of the season but don't fret, I've got some fantastic destination specials coming up in the next few weeks to keep your wanderlust fueled. Today's episode has been nearly two years in the making and was one of the first names I put down on my own interview bucket list when I started the podcast. I am so honoured that today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky. For billions of us, including myself, Airbnb has completely changed the way that we travel. It opened up people's homes, creating an army of super hosts in the process, bringing tourists and locals far closer together. It's no short of a lie that Airbnb created a travel revolution. So you could say today's episode is both Brian's and Airbnb's. For a CEO of his magnitude, it's clearly hard for him to separate the two. And the story of how Airbnb came to be is just not what you'd expect. Brian went to design school. He's an artist. It came from humble beginnings. In fact, it was cereal boxes that first got Airbnb off the ground. You'll have to stay tuned to hear Brian explain more about that. That's just one element of these surprising and fascinating twists and turns that take place on the path to Airbnb's global domination. Brian's answers are very philosophical and a goldmine of both travel and business wisdom. In fact, his answers aren't similar to any other guests that I've had on the podcast because I think, as he says himself, he was a host before he was a traveller. And many of his answers reflect that mindset because travel for him is about getting into a local's point of view. It's not about luxury hotels. You're going to get stories today of people and experiences. And we also hear at the end how Airbnb are pivoting to drive the next revolution in travel. I found this a really interesting conversation. I really like episodes that kind of turn the format of the podcast on its head in a way. It reminded me a little bit of Heston Blumenthal's season finale a couple of seasons back where he kind of approached the Travel Diaries chapters from a completely different point of view. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Brian Chesky, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. This has been in the works for a while. It is amazing to finally be speaking with you today. How are you? I'm doing great and thanks for having me on. We've got a lot to cover. We're going to go on a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries, but we are also going to go on a journey through the story of Airbnb. There is a lot for us to talk about. But let's get started right at the very beginning. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. I would say um, my earliest, at least meaningful childhood memory was, um, so let me just give you some background. Um, I was, uh, I'm from a small town in upstate New York called Niski. And um, it's a suburb of Schenectady. It's like a population of like 18, 20,000. Both my parents were social workers growing up. 
and so we didn't do a lot of like international travel, but my mom was a social worker and every year she, her hospital paid for her to go to like this national social work conference. And so basically my, my fam, my, my dad, my sister and I would basically freeload on my mom's social work conference where we basically join her. And so what happened was the first conference she went to was in St. Louis. So this is probably like 1987, 1988. And it was the first time I was in an airplane. And I think I was seven. And I think my sister, she's five years younger. So she would have been two years old. And I remember getting a U.S. air flight. And I just, I, you know, I, they, they, I was a little kid. They gave me the little airplane pins that like U.S. air, they had these little wings. Yeah. And I thought the whole thing was majestic and magical and the thing about me growing up was I was an artist and like even in a designer, even back then before I even knew what those words meant. And so I was like fascinated with like redesigning cities. And when I went to St. Louis, I was like, I'm like most kids, I had a peculiar interest in like the city planning of the, I don't know why. And so I remember going to the gateway arch, which um, was designed by um, Aerosarinen, I believe, who is one of the great, like, kind of architects of the 20th century and um, reimagining like how this, you know, I just, I was just fascinated with the city and and the experience Mm -hmm. and the, maybe the only other point I'd make, I don't, I think we tend to remember our travel memories more than other memories because they're not routine. I think what happens when we have a routine, we tend to compress those routines into representative memories. So for example, I went on a school bus, like I'm sure like God knows how many days, like a thousand times. I don't remember all thousand days. They, mm-hmm. All those memories are compressed to a couple represent memories. But every trip since St. Louis, I remember because they were really distinct memories. And so I think that's one of the things that travel does is totally. that they're kind of markers that allow you to remember your life greater than the routines. Absolutely. And then in remembering them, it, it will bring out emotions that you had forgotten were even there on a kind of nostalgic feeling can bring those out by going through each chapter of, of, of your travels. Exactly. Yeah. I think nostalgia is this like incredibly powerful thing. I think it's like this yearning for past relationships and experiences. And I think that if you find yourself having nostalgia, it's a clue for maybe what you should have more of in your life. If you find very nostalgia, with spending time with family and doing things that might be a clue to what you should prioritize in your life going forward. Because what it means is probably at some point in the future, you'll yearn for those memories and miss them. And those probably just mean they're meaningful to you. Hmm, that's Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never really thought about it like that. Yeah, that's so true. UK listeners probably won't be that familiar with St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri? Yeah, yeah. St. Louis, Missouri. It's like a... Um, it, I, I don't know. It's maybe like a, I don't know the population. It's not a million people. It was a very, it was, it's a, it's got a long history of being an important industrial town in the United States. And is it a place that you would go on holiday? Like when you went there with your mom, what did you guys get up to? Well, the reason I travel today would be different than what I did back then. I mean, my parents, like, like there was no Airbnb and we didn't do Airbnb type things. We stayed in a hotel that was paid for by the conference and we ate at the Hard Rock Cafe and we would go on double-decker buses and we'd hit up all the museums and do all the things tourists do. Mm-hmm. I would no longer really travel that way. I, I'm i not opposed to people going to museums. I think that's good. But, you know, I do think there's a more local way of traveling. And I think that people find themselves, and, and, and partly because I'm CEO of everybody, I'll say that, but I think even if I wasn't, I would probably say this. 
I think that there's a way to like live more among the community. Imagine if you live there, what would you do and travel more like a local, like as if you live there. And so, you know, travelers go to Times Square every year. They go to San Francisco to Fisherman's Wharf. People who live in these cities don't go to these places. They don't patron this stuff. And I don't think it's really representative of the actual locality. If you want to like just get a glimpse of mass tourism, look at how people travel in your own city. When people come to your city, how do they travel? And ask yourself, do I do that? Would I do that? Um, So that's what I did in St. Louis. I went to a lot of museums. So was that, sorry, was that your like inspiration then for Airbnb experiences? Because that seems like the kind of, that would be like the embryonic thought behind that. Yeah, it was this idea that like, you know, we kind of started Airbnb. I I don't know if I'd say accidentally, but maybe um, kind of spontaneously. It was kind of a spontaneous, not super planned thing that happened one weekend. And through starting Airbnb, there was this discovery. And the discovery was that, you know, some of the most meaningful parts of travel are just living in communities. That travel is about not places, but people. And yeah. so to give you an example, like every year people go to like Paris and the thing they want to see is the Eiffel Tower. And then the next thing they want to do is go to the Louvre. And, you know, the word tourism, um, as far as I can tell, comes from the word Grand Tour. And Grand Tour is the roots of tourism. It was from the, you know, I think the 17th and 18th century where kids of aristocrats, mostly men, would travel to like Paris and Italy and they learned to paint and they live for, they, they'd actually live in the communities. And I think you would go to Paris and you study painting. I think studying painting became looking at a painting behind glass with a bunch of selfie sticks and a mob of people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is what travel is meant to be. I think travel got very, very commoditized over a period of time. I think the power of travel is not when it's about the place. The power of travel or the landmark, the power of travel is about the people. And so the inspiration of Airbnb experiences was instead of going to see a thing, it was experiencing the people. So why just look at art by dead people, which is what the Louvre is, when you could, and, and there's nothing wrong with it, but why couldn't you also get close to the living culture, the artists that were still alive and learn painting from a living artist and by giving money to them you're supporting active artists trying to make it in the city not just you know um supporting museum which is good to support but it has a lot of benefactors and a lot of these artists and local makers don't have the benefactors they don't have the donors they don't have the patrons that these big institutions have and so really helping the locals and in in empowering them Mm-hmm. And that was really the idea. You know, the movie Midnight in Paris was kind of an inspiration. My all-time favorite movie. Oh, really? So My the day, favorite. like, okay, so Midnight in Paris, just for those who haven't seen it, is about this main character named Gil Pender, who's a Hollywood screenwriter who actually dreams of being a novelist. And the movie does this juxtaposition of Paris by day, which is very touristy. And it's like mm-hmm. tourists, and they're, they go to Versailles grounds, and they're... And then at night, he goes back in time. This, these, this car picks him up and brings him into this magical world after midnight in Paris where he goes back to Paris in the 20s. And suddenly, Paris goes from seeing landmarks, trying to wonder what the world was like, to going back in time and living among the people. When Gil Pender goes to Paris after midnight into the 20s, he's not looking at landmarks. He's connecting with people. Now, these are famous people. But they don't have to be famous. I mean, regular people are also interesting. So the vision of experience was almost like Paris after midnight, not Paris by day, meaning it was about people and community. And it's a big vision, and we're not all the way there at all, but that's kind of where we were going with it. 
Amazing. Amazing. I love that, that there's a connection to that movie. How fantastic. That's cool that that was your favorite movie because it's one of the, it was a big inspiration. <sighs> yeah. Uh, and it's made me always want to go to Versailles, actually. I've never been, but I love when they walk around Versailles. Anyway, that's a side oh, yes. note. Um, we kind of jumped ahead a little bit to Airbnb experiences there. But I mean, first of all, you, you mentioned that you're an artist. You're an artist. Uh, you went, went to art school. I imagine a lot of people make the assumption that you were a kind of tech tech engineer, tech guy. But you were set on becoming an artist. So then what was the catalyst that then led to the creation, the idea originally of Airbnb, what it was in its most original sense? I remember my mom telling me, she said, I'm a social worker. I chose a job for the love and I didn't get paid a lot of money. You should choose a job that pays you a lot of money. And one day I tell my mom, I'm going to be an artist. Oh, she's she like, says, you pick oh, the, no. <laughs> Yeah, she said, you pick the only job that will pay you less than a social worker because you'll actually get paid nothing. You'll live in my basement. And I said, mom, I promise I'm not going to live in your basement. She said, if you go to art school, you have to promise me to get a job. And I said, I'll get a job. She goes, no, a real job. And I'm like, what's a real job? She goes, a job with health insurance. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I end up getting um, a scholarship to go to the Rhode Island School of Design and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was very interested in art and design growing up. I was the kid who like asked Santa for poorly designed toys so I could redesign them. I would, that was kind of me. And That's um, amazing. And I get to, I get to RISD, and I came to the conclusion that if I wanted to be an artist, I was almost born like a hundred years too late. Meaning, I wanted to make art for people that I grew up with, but the fine art world, you know, really was something that was mostly patroned by high society. It didn't really speak to the masses illustration was being mostly replaced by photography. And so I didn't really know what I was going to do at RISD. At RISD, two things happened. One, I got into the industrial design department. Industrial design is the design of everything from a toothbrush to a spaceship and everything in between. And it's a highly technical field, at least compared to other design fields. Because so like when you design the iPhone, that's industrial design. Mm -hmm. And you have to work with electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, manufacturing, strategy, distribution. It's, It's a it's a fairly robust education. One could argue it's it's maybe alongside architecture, the most technical of the design educations, perhaps. And, and the more technology gets into it, the more it might be even more technical in some ways than, than, than um, architecture. It's got a whole software component, a lot of things. So that was one thing. And I ended up spending a semester um, doing a program at MIT as well. So we, you know, I had a little bit of a background in working with engineers. Mm. The other thing that happened at RISD is I met my co-founder, um, my now co-founder, Micho Gebbia, and we became kind of friends um, at RISD. And he also was industrial design. He also spent a semester at MIT as well. And, you know, Joe was really the visionary of us getting together and starting a company. I have to give them credit. Yeah. You know, he told me when I was graduating, hey, Brian, I think one day we're going to start a company together and people are going to write a book about it. He literally had like some premonition. Wow. And I didn't have that. I can't say I had, I was thinking as far ahead as Joe at the time. And, but I took his word for him. I'm like, okay, like, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Keep me, keep me posted. I graduated a year before him. So, you know, I moved to Los Angeles. I start, I get a job with health insurance. My mom's happy. I'm an industrial designer at this very little firm working out of Marina del Rey in Los Angeles, living with three of my friends, two of which went to Rhode Island School Design Me that I got to move across the country. And then one day I get a package in the mail. It's from Joe in San Francisco, and it's a product he designed, and there's a note enclosed. And it basically the note says, come to San Francisco, that he started a company, and then I can come to San Francisco, and we start a company together. Uh-huh. This was a defining period of my life. 
it was the most maybe important decision I ever made in my life to this point. Do I go to San Francisco with Joe or stay in Los Angeles? Yeah. Staying in Los Angeles was like the road in front of me looking like the road behind me. It was disappearing in the horizon. And I thought to myself at the age of 25, oh my God, like this can't be the rest of my life. I've got to do something and I got to get out of here and I got to go to San Francisco. So I'm turning 26 years old. I pack everything in the back of an old Honda Civic. And with a thousand dollars the bank, I tell my friends I'm leaving them and I'm going to San Francisco. I get to San Francisco and Joe tells me the rent is $1,150. So I have a basic math problem. I can't afford to pay rent. It turns out that weekend that an international design conference was coming to San Francisco and all the hotels in San Francisco were sold out. And that's when we had an idea. Joe said, well, what if we just turned our house into a bed and breakfast for a design conference? Unfortunately, I didn't have any beds, but Joe had three air beds. We pulled the air beds out of the closet. We inflated the air beds and we called it airbedandbreakfast.com. And that's where the name Airbnb comes from. Oh my goodness, I've posting, never made the connection with even an, with airbeds. 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 Airbnb, right. Airbnb is airbeds. A lot of people don't know what Airbnb means. It, yeah. meant, it wasn't a bed and breakfast. It was an airbed and breakfast. Imagine going to a bed and breakfast with airbeds. <laughs> I mean, so I remember at the time saying one day this idea will be huge. Thousands of people will one day use the service. And we ended up hosting three people from around the world that weekend, a 35-year-old woman from Boston, a 45-year-old father five from Utah, and a 30-year-old named Amol from India. Hmm. Something, Two things important happened that weekend. The first thing is we make a bunch of money and Joe and I can now pay our rent. That's really important. Yep. But probably something more important than paying our rent happened. We became friends with these people because when people live with you for a week and we kind of took them around the city, they got to live like local designers. They didn't just get airbeds. They hung out with us. We took them to parties. We took them to restaurants. We introduced them to our friends. They got to feel like they were visiting a friend in another city. They got to be designers in San Francisco for a week. And it was a whole incredibly fun experience for me as well. And I remember as we're waving them goodbye, Joe and I look at each other and we realize we're ordinary guys. I bet you there's a lot of other ordinary people like us that want to meet some people, make some extra money, meet some cool people. So I asked Joe, I said, well, who's the best engineer you know? He said, well, my old roommate, Nate, is. Nate was a computer scientist, went to Harvard, very technical. And so the three of us got together and we said, what if you could book someone's home the way you could book a hotel anywhere in the world? We did. We built it. We launched it. And nobody used it. Hmm. I I didn't understand why. Mm -hmm. And people said, are you crazy? You think I'm going to stay in a stranger's home? And I remember the first one of the first people I told the idea to, he said, Brian, I said, yes. He said, I hope that's not the only idea you're working on. <laughs> the point was that somebody once told me, don't worry about people stealing your idea. If it's any good, everyone will dismiss it. And I think some mm-hmm. of the most radical ideas might seem like obvious in hindsight, but that wasn't obvious. If it was obvious, somebody would have already done this. And it, all of which is to say, 14 years later, we just hit a milestone of 1 billion guest arrivals, which means Airbnb has been now used a billion times. And I think that the lesson of people using Airbnb a billion times is people thought this idea would never work, but actually not only did it work, but it tells us something about humanity. No matter, you know, um, no matter how much we think the worst of humanity and the more you read the news, the more you might be down on humanity. We have a lot of data and I can say, with data that people are statistically fundamentally good. Mm-hmm. If people weren't good, this idea wouldn't work. I'm not saying all people do good things all the time, but 
this idea wouldn't have worked. And I think that fundamentally, you know, my big lessons are people are fundamentally good and people are 99.9% the same. And we spend so much time talking about how we're all different. And some of those differences are good, like culture and diversity. Um, I think most of them are probably bad because it's division and isolation. And we think the other is, is, is really different than us. And I think that as you travel the world, you realize the other is not so other. People mm-hmm. with the strongest opinions about other people are the ones that don't have passports. Isn't that so crazy? Mm-hmm. And the more you travel, the more you learn, the more you grow, and your sense of self expands. And so to me, I don't know, I'm just kind of rambling now, but that's kind of the story of Airbnb and kind of how we got here. I have a good story, I think, to share with you after the next chapter about Airbnb and humanity and the, oh, good, cool. the goodness of people. Uh, but first of all, let's do chapter two, which is the first place that you fell in love with. I grew up in upstate New York. And in many ways, I can't say I felt like an insider where I grew up. Maybe it was because I went to different high schools. Like I went to a private school when I was in eighth grade to 11th grade. And I transferred at the end of 11th grade to a public high school. And I was kind of an artist and designer, but I played sports. But the thing is, like, if you play sports, like your parents, like, are very involved and you have a lot of friends. If you're an artist growing up, it's kind of, you're a little more of an outsider. There, there's not really like a, parents aren't like coming, to, you know, like all cheering you on, you know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. so I, I, I think... I think I felt a little like an outsider growing up in a 1998, I think it was 1998, the summer 1998, I went to a pre-college program in at Pratt Institute, which is an art school in New York city mm-hmm. in Brooklyn in um, I think Clinton Hill, if I'm not mistaken. And this is the late nineties and I get to Pratt and I met a friend there named Kenny. Kenny was five years older than me, if I'm not mistaken. I was 16. Kenny was 21. Kenny was from Haiti. And he lived in essentially the Haitian neighborhood in Brooklyn at the time, which was Flatbush. It was kind of like little Haiti. Mm, so my and, dad's from. Okay. And um, yeah. And I, I mean, talk about being an outsider. If there was a place I was an outsider, it was Flatbush in 1998. And yet Kenny brought me into the whole community and he like connected me to all his friends in a sense you could almost say like before Airbnb Kenny was one of my first hosts and if I had driven to Flatbush if I was a random interloper I wouldn't have had any connection to it but I ended up having like these really meaningful friends and really connected but the reason I fell in love with that area wasn't because of something about the geography or the architecture it's interesting but it was about the people and I think the way to fall in love with a place that it's most meaningful is the people. It's great sure. to fall in love with Paris and love the architecture and the Eiffel Tower. But I do think that the magic is always was and always will be in the people in a city. And so maybe that thought just came to my mind yeah. as I was thinking about it. How nice. So my little story about humanity with Airbnb. Yeah. I, for about six years with my husband was a super host on Airbnb. We'd rent out our um, London apartment because I'm a travel journalist as well. Whenever we went away, we'd rent out our our place and it would help fund our trips. It would pay for our flights and things. So, you know, it was this amazing gift to us. 
Um, and we have people come from all over the world, from China, from India, from Japan, from the States. And we had this amazing family come and stay from Colorado. And they had such a great time. They left us a note. They said, if you ever back in the, if you ever come to the US, we have an Airbnb um, in Marble in Colorado, oh, wow. up in the mountains. It's off grid. Um, it would be in your uh, new off the grid category that you announced uh, oh, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, he said, you know, if you ever want to come and stay, you must. And later that year, I was going traveling around the US uh, with my husband. We actually were getting married out there. And so we we took him up on his offer and he only charged us the cleaning fee, which was very generous of him. And we oh. reconnected with this guy and we were in this incredible place looking out over the snowy peaks of Marble, Colorado with the glistening turquoise lake in front of us. And I thought, you know, this would never have happened were it not for this really cool platform that linked us together. I think I think you're kind of hitting on the thing that's critical. I think when people first look at Airbnb, on the surface, what they see are homes and that, that exists, but these homes can't exist without hosts that these aren't like self-driving homes that mm -hmm. just open themselves. Um, without the host, it's really just a space and it doesn't have any personality. It doesn't have any hospitality. You really don't have any connection to local community. And when Airbnb works well, it's because the guests and hosts have a meaningful connection. Yeah. It doesn't mean they become friends. Sometimes they do, but there's a meaningful connection in, the meaningful connection manifests in you at the most fundamental level, probably feeling like you go somewhere and you feel like you're at home. You feel like you belong there. You don't feel like an outsider in someone else's home. Mm -hmm. A connectedness. You feel like you feel a connectedness, like you're in your home or maybe you're staying with a friend. And, um, and that's kind of maybe the most fundamental thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And my mum too was also a super host for several years in her place wow. as well. So we're a family a of family Airbnb. Of <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love that. I love the family of super hosts. That's awesome. <laughs> Today's episode is supported by DK Eyewitness. As we approach 2022, the folks at DK Eyewitness want to help you and your family get closer to your next destination with their latest books. Get new editions of their award-winning DK Eyewitness and top 10 travel guides to your favorite destinations and see the world's biggest cities differently with their all-new Like a Local guides. Or if you're looking for a last-minute gift for the explorer in your family, try the inspirational Outdoor Europe ride cycle the world and unforgettable journeys find them on special offer at wordery.com and as a special christmas present from dk listeners to the travel diaries get an extra 10 percent off all purchases from wordery.com simply enter the code dk eyewitness that's dk eyewitness at checkout and don't forget to join james and lucy on dk's own where to go podcast for even more travel inspiration 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. We're at kind of the, I'd say the, the, the beginning stages of the story of Airbnb. You have this great idea. You had the guests come and stay. It paid for your rent. But then like, let's fast forward now to how things are going. And you'd raised all these funds in this incredibly unusual way. And I just wondered if you could tell us the story of how you raised the funds. Okay, so here's what happened. So Joe and I, Joe Nate and I start Airbnb. We launch it and very few people use it. I think the first version of Airbnb we, we, or the first version was that first week in October. Then Nate gets involved. We build another version. We launch it in, um, I think it was March 2008 for South by Southwest mm-hmm. to provide housing for conference goers. Right. At the time, it was a conference website. In fact, I remember thinking, are we more about travel, housing, or conferences? Interesting. And it wasn't clear what the answer was, by the way. And we ended up getting two bookings, and I was one of the two bookings. <laughs> Needless to say, wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So we launched the third time in the summer of 2008 to provide housing for the democratic national convention, which basically means that Barack Obama, then Senator Barack Obama was just nominated to be president of the United States. And there was a big, you know, kind of convention that he was speaking at and all these people needed housing at the convention. So we provided housing and I thought we were on top of the world. And then the following weekend we had no bookings again. And I realized if only we had political conventions every week, we'd have a business, but there aren't political conventions every week, every four years. So we don't really have a business. And Joe and I, at this point, get introduced to a number of investors in Silicon Valley. But the problem is investors want to invest in growth, right? They want to give you money and they want to get more money back. And that's only possible if the company is growing. And they only usually believe the company will grow if it already is growing. Mm-hmm. We weren't growing. So a company not growing is going to be challenged to get money, especially if you've launched three times and it's still not growing. People think there's something wrong with the idea. So we were trying to raise $150,000 at a $1.5 million valuation. 
and none of the investors we got introduced to could, gave us money. Um, and I don't blame them. It seemed like a crazy idea. We didn't look like typical founders. I mean, two of the three founders were designers. That was not considered a good thing back then. Yeah. And so, you know, late night, one night, Joe and I kind of were like in our kitchen. We were kind of lamenting that like our name was Airbed and Breakfast and the airbeds weren't working. And we thought, well, maybe breakfast will work. Maybe the other, maybe we picked the wrong word. <laughs> so let's maybe get into breakfast cereal. I mean, we started thinking, you know, we're not going to like send people eggs. So we thought a non-perishable is breakfast. And John McCain and Barack Obama were both essentially running for president. And we thought, why don't we create a collectible breakfast cereal to sell? Why did we do this? I don't know. Maybe it's because we're designers. Maybe we're creative. Maybe we're desperate. You know those binders that kids put baseball cards in yeah. growing up? I don't know. if any, You have to be a little older. If you're like 25, you might not remember them. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not 25, so I very much remember Yeah, them. so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so I don't. I think today everything's digital. But back then there were these like plastic sleeves you put baseball cards in. Well, Joe and I put credit cards in them. In other words, that's how we funded the company. Um, tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt. At some point, that became unsustainable. And we weren't making money off Airbnb. We couldn't take out more credit cards. Investors weren't giving us money. So we resorted to selling collectible breakfast cereal. As so you we did. thought, what would a Barack, <laughs> as, as naturally one would do when they're out of all other options, <laughs> they sell collectible breakfast cereal as a last resort. This was, of course, rock bottom. And we ended up selling, we ended up designing a Barack Obama-themed cereal called Obama O's. So they were like Cheerios. And we said they were Obama O's. Awesome. And then we called it the breakfast of change. And it was a blue box with a radiant light coming out of it and all that. And we said it was hope in every bowl. And there was this like, it was just kind of like a funny, like, like kind of, um, kind of kitschy gag, but it was pretty well designed. And then we thought, well, if we're going to create a Barack Obama themed cereal, we don't want to be partisans. So we should create a Republican themed cereal. And we learned that John McCain the late John McCain was a captain in the Navy. So we came up with a brand called Captain McCain's, a maverick in every bite. And it was a red box. And so now we have these really interesting boxes of cereal. And we called up like General Mills and big cereal companies to get them to make these boxes. And I think the moment we called them up, like the phone hung up. We didn't get very far. <laughs> so Joe found a, a printer, not a cereal company, but a printer in Berkeley who was an alumni of our college of Renan School Design. And we didn't have any money. And so we wanted him to print like 100,000 box cereal. And we, but we had no money. He goes, well, I can't print you 100,000 box cereal, but I'll print you 1,000 boxes for free. I'll incur all the cost. And if you do sell them, just give me a royalty. It was very generous. Yeah. And we agreed to do it. So we printed 1,000 boxes of cereal and we sold them as collectible items, $40 a box. Everyone was hand numbered. We, we, and, and when we got the box cereal, they were like flat. So we'd assemble them ourselves. We'd actually fold a thousand boxes of cereal and hot glue them and stuff them with real cereal boxes. And I remember when I was doing this thinking, I wonder if Mark Zuckerberg ever had to hot glue cereal boxes together when he started Facebook. And the answer was no. And it seemed like a foreboding sign. But we ended up selling $30,000, I think, of collectible breakfast cereal and became cereal entrepreneurs. And that's kind of how we got the company going. entrepreneurs. Absolutely love that. What, what an incredible story. Well, chapter three is the place where you learn the most about yourself. Where would that be? It's a good toss-up. Probably here in San Francisco. I was I was debating in myself the the... I've had like three defining moments in my life. I mean, I guess I had more, but I'd say three chapters. 
The first was 16 years old when I transferred from a private quasi-military school to a public school and decided I wanted to be an artist. The second defining moment was when I was, um, and I got to RISD. And so I think RISD, I learned a lot about myself. Um, but the next defining moment was when we started Airbnb. And the last defining moment would have been last year. I think that I learned who I was through the course of starting Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and maybe it, it was, I never managed anyone before. I didn't even interact with a lot of people, you know, in the grand scheme of things before starting the company. I never really had responsibility in my life, really, um, for anything or anyone. Well, you were very um, young, right, to get when you were starting all this. Yeah, well. I was two years out of college. I yeah. was twenty-five, turning. I just turned twenty-six when I started the company, and so like most people in mid twenties, don't really have a lot of responsibility. I hadn't traveled very much. I was not a traveler, and I didn't start Airbnb because I loved traveling. In fact, this is an important part of the story. Joe and I weren't travelers. We were hosts. So we started as the first host, not the first travelers. And we loved hosting. We loved bringing people into our world and curating experiences. I love traveling, but I did not have a passion for traveling before Airbnb. And the reason why is I think that traveling is one of these things where the more you do it, the more you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And when people have never traveled, I think there's a desire to travel, but I also think there's something a little scary about it. And you want to like kind of stake in your comfort zone of where you grow up. And yeah. I think that's why people with the strong opinion, strongest opinions about other people are the ones without passports, not people with passports. And um, through the starting of Airbnb and the growing of Airbnb, I learned so much about myself. You know, Joe took me in. I basically joined a community, Silicon Valley, a tech community. And I joined this community in a very magical era during the beginning of the mobile revolution. And a lot of things were happening. Web 2.0 was growing. Internet adoption was accelerating around the world. The mobile revolution meant that the internet was with you at all times. And so this was kind of like an internet renaissance at the time, or, you know, that kind of came off the shadows of the dot-com crash. And, you know, I became who the, in many ways, I became the person I am today through the experience of starting and growing Airbnb. And you can learn a lot about yourself. The only other thing I'd say about this is to, to end the story. I learned a lot about myself last year. You know, if I learned a lot of starting Airbnb, the birth of Airbnb, I probably learned just about as much with the rebirth of Airbnb, which was last year. Yeah. And the reason why is I've luckily never had a near death experience in my life. Although my understanding of it is a lot of people describe near death experiences as their life flashing before their eyes and having a moment of clarity. Yeah. And I think we had what felt like a near death business experience. And I think staring to the best, I think I learned a lot about myself, what I valued with the company flashing before my eyes. And you can learn a lot about people in a crisis. And I think you can also learn a lot about yourself in a crisis, right? Yeah. You don't really quite know until your back is against the wall and you're facing an imminent demise or abyss who you are, what you value, and how you respond. Once you go through that experience, you learn a lot about yourself and people learn a lot about you as well. And so I think that that was another way I've learned about myself. But I think most of the lessons about who I am as a person, I think I've gleaned from the last 10 years in San Francisco, or last 14 years, mm. starting Airbnb and the journey I'm on. Mm-hmm. We'll come on later to um, the last year and, and the roller coaster that's been. But, yeah. um, but before we do, chapter four is your all-time favorite destination. Where comes to mind? Well, maybe I'll pick 
you mean you're supposed to pick one, but pick two, like a like a nearby. Go for then... it. Pick two, please. Okay. So the exotic one that I've been to that really had a big impact on me was Tokyo. Um, mm-hmm. It was just a very foreign uh, place, very unfamiliar. Many of the kind of cultural, like stand, everything kind of felt a little bit different. I think there's this incredible design culture in Tokyo, oh, yeah. but it's a very different kind of design than what Americans value. It's, it's about, it's a, it's, it's very much connected to truth, simplicity, the essence of having few details, refining every detail. Um, so I think there's something like really thoughtful about the Japanese culture that I think has maybe had some influence on me and, you know, many of the great designers of, in history have been influenced by Japanese culture. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright was very influenced when the greatest American architect of all time by Japanese culture mm-hmm. designed the Imperial hotel before it was destroyed. You know, Steve jobs famously had a very intra- a big interest in Japanese culture. And I think that permeated the design of Apple. We could probably go down the list of other people inspired by Japanese culture. Um, you know, Steve was very much inspired by Sony's culture, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Japan would be one. The other one, less exotic, at least from an American standpoint, but a place I return time and again is Los Angeles. LA was the first time I really lived on my own in an actual apartment with friends. I have so many fun memories. And I think that um, Los Angeles has become a major migration of the creative community. I think it used to be a place for Hollywood. It's now a much a broader place for creatives. Um, and so I think LA is one of the creative capitals of the world now. A lot of people don't realize this, but there is so much creativity there. Oh yeah. And so I would, I would just pick out those two places, uh, far away, Tokyo, nearby LA. So then what you've raised the funds, the business, you know, launches and when was the moment where you were, I, I, I don't know how quick this happened. When was the moment that you were like, wow, okay, we've made it. That this is this is going to be huge. Probably 2011, and not 2009 was taken off. 2010 was taken off. 2011, it was just massive. It um, we became a, a so-called unicorn before that term even existed. Mm-hmm. We were a billion-dollar company, and not to mark, not to diminish becoming a billion-dollar company. There are hundreds of them today. Back then, there was like YouTube, there was PayPal, like like you could name the billion. There weren't very many, and that moment we were put on the radar for good and bad. And then suddenly we were hot. Everyone was talking about us, but we were also under a lot of scrutiny. I'm not sure we were prepared for it. It was a growing up experience. Maybe that was like, maybe another way of saying it is that began the beginning of corporate adolescence that I think started in 2011 and exited in the pandemic. I think a pandemic is when we grew up into adulthood, but that was the beginning of our adolescence. Mm-hmm. So chapter five, then, if we pause there for a moment, is your hidden gem, a place that you love that maybe my listeners wouldn't know so much about? The way I generally live my life and travel is I like to kind of go to communities and connect with people, and they all kind of bring me into things. So instead of me seeking places, again, I guess I seek people, Mm -hmm. and those people take me and bring me to places so the answer to your question, I don't think of, I don't think of that as a construct when I go places. I think of like hidden gems as people that I seek out and they bring me to places. But to, to, to answer your question, um, you know, if people were to visit me in San Francisco, I would take them to a place. And so I'll just, I'll just pick one random place sure. um, in San Francisco at a left field, the Walt Disney Family Museum. 
Uh-huh. When I, I'm trying to think, when people visit me in San Francisco, where do I take them? Mm-hmm. I take a lot of people to the Walt Disney Family Museum. I'm not recommending everyone go to it, but I have a deep interest in Walt Disney because I thought he was a creative leader. Um, I want to identify as one as well. He was a creative leader that was a futurist, really a technologist, people don't realize, that started a company that was beloved, but he had a vision of um, a whole different way to live your life in communities. You know, when he was working on Disneyland, his real vision was to design communities of the future. In fact, the name Epcot at Walt Disney World stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. (laughs) It initially was not conceived as a theme park. What Walt Disney was actually trying to do before he died was to create a city of tomorrow, a community of the future. And it was going to, that's why he, he incorporated this town in, in Disney world. And that was not going to be a theme park. Primarily it was going to be this future city and it had, you know, underground tunnels, like what Elon Musk is like putting out as a vision of the boring company. And it had a radial airport, you know, where the runway was on a giant circle to save space. And, um, it was just, he had the precursor to self-driving cars. Um, they were called Wedway people machines. The whole thing was a radial design, kind of like similar to the plan of Paris. Um, and Walt Disney, before he died, said, I don't think there's a greater challenge in the world than the challenge of today's cities. This is in 1966. I think mm-hmm. that could be said today now more than ever before. And so it's kind of a weird thing, but when sometimes I have friends visit me in service, I'll take them to Walt Disney Museum that's in the Presidio. And I sometimes, again, it's very personal to me, but I'll take them through the museum, through Walt's life, and show them the principles of what Walt did because it's kind of a way to understand some of what my passions are. And yeah. he's probably one of my idols. Great. Great pick. And when I go to San Francisco next, it was a tough one because I, be sure to I was like, oh there. my God, like what coffee shop would I take you to? What restaurant? But I feel like. Uh, there's something more meaningful than that. That yeah, was it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the human element behind your hidden gem. Yeah. So chapter six, the penultimate chapter, is normally your worst travel experience. But mm. as we touched on earlier, I thought it would be more fitting to to discuss the... Yeah, the, the founder the, of Airbnb describing his worst travel experience would unfortunately get more tension and embarrass <laughs> whoever I call out. So I want to be, I don't want to embarrass anyone. So after a decade of almost unhindered growth, COVID hits and the impact is immediate and massive. 80% of business in eight weeks disappeared. Is that right? Yeah, about 80%. And I heard you t- say in another interview that one of your board members said that this was going to be your defining moment as a leader. So we, we, I know that you said that this was, this is like the, the kind of growing into adulthood of the, of the company. Tell me a bit about how the last year has been, how you helped to steer the company to safer ground. And, and actually, you know, I'd be really interested to know, like we, like you said, it was like a near death experience. So how near were you to the precipice? Would you say? We were never very close to the precipice at all. But nobody knew that at the time right? because when the business had dropped by 80% in eight weeks, we didn't know what happened in the next 20%. No one knew that that no one knew bottom was bottom until it actually started recovering. And the other thing is nobody knew how long the storm would go on. And so when we lost 80% of business in eight weeks, it was clear that 
Okay, so let me just back up. Before the crisis, I came back in January 2020 from the holidays, like many people thinking my life would go in one direction, not realizing a once a century event would change my life and everyone's life around me, and therefore all of our plans. And that's what happened. We lost 80% of this in eight weeks. At that moment, I was working on our IPO. To go public, you have to write this really long securities document called an S1. It's a multi-hundred-page document. Right. I The IPO was put on hold. And I remember a banker, one of the bankers, I think from Goldman Sachs, said, I don't think you have to worry about your S1 this year, meaning you're not going public this year. And, um, and that was good advice because that's what it seemed like. And we had to do a very painful series of decisions, including laying off a significant number of our employees. And the reason why, as I said, I'm like a captain on a ship. We're in a very bad storm. And the problem is we don't know how long the storm will go on. It could go on for years. And so we need enough rationing, enough supplies to make it through the storm. And we have to prioritize the solvency and the survive, uh, and, and the, the enduring uh, legacy of Airbnb. So I never... I never thought we were close to the end, but last April and May, there were articles, headlines, like, is this the end of Airbnb? Will the coronavirus destroy Airbnb? Can Brian Chesky save Airbnb? These were headlines. So clearly people outside the company thought that the end might be near. Otherwise, I don't think they would have written those headlines. And these were like mainstream journalists. These weren't, these weren't like, you know, like little blogs. These were like big mainstream journalists. Um, I got a call on the Ides of March, March 15th. The World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus a pandemic. The economy, just like the global economy, practically shuts down, you know, just stops. People are sheltering in place. Travel is the economic bellwether um, for the economy, right? Like, think about it. Like, people are looking to travel as leading indicators to how people are living, moving, and consuming. Yeah. And Ken Chenault, he was, he's my um, lead director on the board. He was CEO of American Express. And he led American Express through September 11th and 2008. So these were two big crises. And he called me and he said, like, this is your defining moment. And what I did at that moment was pass the message on to the company. And I said, this is not just my defining moment. This is our defining moment. And in a crisis... I think the hardest thing to manage, this is my experience, is your own psychology, mm-hmm. right? Your own thoughts are pretty mm-hmm. hard to manage yeah. because in a crisis, people look to leaders. They look up to leaders, hoping for security, for optimism, to show them a path forward. And as a leader, you have two choices. You can say, why me? Or you can say, watch me. And those are your kind of like your two choices. And I chose to tell the company the following. I said, this is going to be our defining moment. Because I had that premonition. I said, out of great crisis is born great opportunity. And this is going to be a moment that people are going to be looking at years from now, decades from now, if they're ever be successful, they're going to look back on the decisions we make this year as leaving indelible marks. The world's watching. We have an opportunity. We're going through massive change. We are a technology company. We're built for change. We have an adaptable model. This will be our defining moment. And I got in a foxhole with like a thousand people and we rebuilt the company from the ground up. We got more focused. We pivoted our business. There was people were traveling nearby. They were staying longer. We were able to adapt to this new business and something remarkable happened. We rebuilt Airbnb over Zoom 
as a travel company in the middle of a pandemic, stronger than it was before the pandemic, did end up going public and had one of the most successful IPOs of all time. Yeah, that was an unbelievable experience. Yeah, I was telling people last year I was 39 going on 49 because I felt like I experienced 10 years worth of decisions in a matter of months. And I would say that that's when I truly grew up as a CEO. If 2011 was the moment you came a billion dollar company, the moment I really became a CEO, that was the beginning of my corporate adolescence, growing pains, all sorts of challenges. I think that last year was the year I grew up into adulthood as a CEO, you know, now running a public company. And I think I am going to look back on this year, last year, the way I look back at the founding of the company, like there's the birth and there's the rebirth, Mm -hmm. 26 and 39, two major chapters in my life. And I, the last thing I'll just say about this is I think there's a less, if, if every listener can take a lesson from that story, it's a lesson is, you know, I remember when my dad was, when I was growing up, my dad said, things are never as good as they seem or as bad as they seem. Mm. But um, mm-hmm. a crisis is a terrible opportunity to waste. And so even when things seem bad, they're probably not as bad as they seem, just like they weren't as good as they seem before they were bad. Yeah. And also, you know, you can say, why me? Or you can also say, watch me. And it's a mindset shift. And I think that you can look for opportunity every time. And a crisis is an opportunity everyone's paying attention. You have everyone's attention. Everyone can rally together. It's really just, you know, it's up to it's up to you to do it. And and I don't want to say it's easy and it always works, but that was our story. An incredible story and an incredible achievement. So, Brian, we are on to the final chapter of your life's travel diaries, chapter seven. And that is the travel destination that is at the top of your bucket list. Okay, I believe we're living through a revolution in travel. The reason why is because for centuries, people were tethered to the office, the farm, the factory. For at least office workers, many of them are no longer tethered to the office because CEOs and bosses aren't making them come back to the office five days a week. And if they did, many people would resign because I think flexibility would be one of the most important benefits after compensation. So I think we're going to live in this world where people have flexibility that they never had before to go anywhere, anytime, for any length. You know, you know, again, people with kids have to kind of be tethered to where the school is at least half the year, although the other half the year they can conceivably go away. Uh, people without kids, and I don't have kids, I'm not tethered to any place, and so I can go anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I guess to answer your question, what I dream of is not to travel somewhere, it's to live somewhere. And I think that people aren't just traveling Airbnb, they're now living on Airbnb. And I would define living as 30 days or longer. Yeah. You know, um, most people define travel as 28 days or less. Um, if you travel somewhere less than 28 days, you have to pay hotel tax. Cities all basically agree that 30 days is permanent housing. And so one of the things I'd like to do is to live on Airbnb. Um, I haven't chosen the first place I want to live, but I'm thinking of going somewhere for December and if anyone has any ideas, I'd, I'd be certainly down to, to live somewhere else. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Brian Chesky. Those were your travel diaries. It has been fascinating and a total honor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, a huge thank you to Brian Chesky. Some 
Very profound thoughts on travel there. I mean, for me, Brian's view of the implications of COVID and a desire for more flexibility in our working lives as a result, you know, that really stuck with me because we've discussed on the podcast many times with the climate crisis in mind in particular that we need to be more conscious of how we travel. Perhaps, you know, Brian's view that people will live more flexibly gives us a flavour of a part of the solution here. You know, slower travel to get there, 30 days plus in a location to, you know, really fully explore, get under the skin of where you're staying with that kind of blend of working and travel. Sign me up. I'm all for it. If you want to follow in mine and Brian's footsteps and become a host on Airbnb, you can go to airbnb.com forward slash host to sign up and try out airbnb.co.uk forward slash ask a super host to speak to other UK hosts for advice. Thanks so much for listening today. If you are enjoying the podcast, then don't forget to hit subscribe or if you use Apple Podcasts to hit follow so that a new episode lands in your podcast app each week. And if you really enjoyed it, then if you fancy leaving a rating or a review, that would be extra special. Come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. Would love to hear from you as always. And don't forget that all the destinations mentioned by my guests, I always include in the episode show notes. And they're also always on my website, thetraveldiariespodcast.com. I'll be back next week with a fantastic Finland Christmas destination special episode. So I shall see you then. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.